Hey, I appreciate that so much. It's been a, <clears throat> it was a big surprise starting last night, and it's a big blessing to our family to be here. So, so thankful for that. Grab your Bible and go with me to Luke chapter 7. I want to say hi to the folks across the street, the video venue, and you folks joining us online. And uh, while you're turning there, let me tell you, I, we, something very unusual happened this morning uh, before the 1045 service. At some point, we ran out of bulletins, which almost never happens. But we had about 1,200 people here at 9 o'clock, and so I, I guess getting an extra hour sleep, you know, has uh, more of it, it, it uh, has more of an impact on your life than you know. So the place was just packed, uh, and so we ran out of bulletin. So I apologize for that, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll make do. Uh, this is, I told you last week, a, a, a teaching time that we're doing for uh, four weeks called All In. Uh, normally, this time of year, we spend our time talking about what it means to be a good steward of the monies that God has entrusted to you, and I told you we're very unapologetic about that. That's a part of our ministry every year because um, we need to understand what the Bible says about money. We need to understand our responsibility, our responsibility to support the ministry that God has given us a privilege to be a part of, but we're doing something a little different. I'm going to talk a little bit about generosity uh, in a, uh, uh, a few minutes later on in the message, but not until we look at this incredible story that I want to talk to you about and share with you from Luke chapter 7. So let's not waste any more time. If you've got your Bible, open there, stand together with me in reverence and respect for God's Word, wherever you are. And um, I want you to um, follow along as I read verses 36 through 50, this incredible story. My Bible the heading of this story is Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. This is how it reads. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had been who, excuse me, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We pray God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Let me just state the obvious as we begin. It's very unusual for Jesus to have been invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. I don't know if you know who Pharisees are, but in New Testament times, Pharisees were a strict group of religious fundamentalists who really cared about one thing and one thing only, and that was keeping the Old Testament law in absolute detail. Their lives revolved around following a list of rules related to what they should do and what they should not do. That was their lives, and because of that, they were very religious, but they were not very spiritual. On the outside, externally, they looked good, but on the inside, sadly, their hearts were dark and oftentimes far from God. 
But the reason why this was so unusual for Jesus was because the Pharisees were his most outspoken critics during his earthly vocational ministry, and they played a huge role ultimately in his death. But on this evening, a Pharisee named Simon invited him to dinner. Let me describe what that would have looked like in the first century. In those days, affluent people, and Simon certainly would have fallen into the category of someone who was affluent, often had a dining area in a courtyard in their home. So you can just picture a home that was open to a courtyard, and they would have a dining area there in their homes. And whenever they would throw a dinner party and they would have a distinguished guest or a visiting rabbi or something like that, remember Jesus was a rabbi and he was a rabbi who was well known at that time, then people from the town would have been allowed to come and stand on the outside of the courtyard to watch what was going on. They wouldn't have been invited to eat. They would not have been included in the conversation, but they were allowed to stand on the outside of the courtyard and watch and listen to everything that was taking place. And that's where this woman was. It was that setting that allowed her to break pretty much every social custom of the day, do the exact opposite of everything that was proper, walk into the dinner party and approach Jesus. Verse 36 says that Jesus was reclining at a table. It's another thing that was different about ancient days. If I were to invite you over to my house for lunch after church, then at some point we would go into my dining room, we would all pull a chair out from the table, and we would sit with our legs under the table. But that's not the way it was in the first century. Dining tables were built low to the ground, and the guests would recline around the table on mats. For example, they might recline on their left elbow and feed themselves with their right hand. You didn't know your children were preserving biblical traditions when they were eating their meals in front of the television. And that's where Jesus would have been when this woman came in and approached him. He would have been in that position. Verse 37 tells us that this was a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town. Now, just so there's no confusion, I want to be really clear about this. There was only one way a woman in a patriarchal society like the one of that day There was only one way she could have gotten a reputation for being a sinful woman, and that was that she had lived a sexually promiscuous life. That was it. In fact, if you study this on your own, you'll find most Bible commentators believe that she was actually a prostitute. But she was so drawn to Jesus. She was so moved by who Jesus was that she was willing to break social customs and approach him. And she did it, as you saw in the text, in an incredibly demonstrative way. As she approached him, she began to cry so that her tears spilled onto Jesus' feet. In verse 38, my NIV Bible says that her tears wet his feet. The Greek word that's used there in the original language for wet is the word breho, which literally means rain. Her tears were raining down on his feet. So she washed his feet with her tears. Don't miss the cultural significance of that. In the first century, everyone wore sandals. They walked on dirty, dusty roads. Their feet were always dirty. And so one of the things a good host would do when he would invite you into your home, into his home rather, is he would provide a servant at the door with a basin of water and a towel to wash your feet when you entered and to dry them. And if he couldn't afford a servant, at the very least, he would provide a basin of water at the door and a towel so you could wash your own feet. But as we saw in the text, Simon didn't do any of that. But this sinful woman washed Jesus' feet 
with her tears, and then she dried them with her hair, which, by the way, means she broke another social custom. The first social custom she broke was walking in to the party that she wasn't invited to just as an observer and approaching Jesus. The second was this. A Jewish woman in the first century did not, I mean, they simply did not appear in public with their hair unbound. It just didn't happen. It was actually something that was so scandalous that it would give a husband legal grounds for divorce if his wife appeared in public with her hair unbound. But she didn't care. After she, after she, she let her tears rain down on Jesus' feet and wash his feet, she took her hair down and she dried his feet with her hair. She's so captivated, she's so overwhelmed by Jesus that nothing else matters. She's losing all sense of personal and public decorum and her behavior just continued to get more scandalous from there. As the story goes on, we see that while she washed and dried his feet, I want you to try to imagine this for a moment. She kissed them. She kissed his feet over and over again. Today in the Western world, we pretty much interpret a kiss from a romantic perspective. But that's not the way it was in the first century. In the first century, in the day of Jesus, it was also a gesture of friendship and a gesture of devotion and respect. It's still that way in many parts of the world today. Next weekend, Dr. Ajay Law from India will be here preaching for us in our pulpit. I hope that you'll be here. It'll be a powerful message. When I pick him up at the airport later this week, when he gets to me, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to hug me and he's going to kiss me on the shoulder because that's the custom of his country. It's a sign of respect and friendship and devotion. That's the way it is many places today. That's the way it was in the first century. When you would enter to the home of a host, he would often place his hand on your shoulder and then kiss you on the cheek or the forehead as a way to welcome you and show you respect. But Simon didn't do that. Just like he didn't provide any way to wash Jesus' feet, he didn't provide him with a kiss of welcome and respect when he came into his home. But she kissed Jesus over and over again. Honestly, as I was studying this passage this week, you know, this part of the story where she, she washes his feet, dries his feet, where she kisses his feet and all the other things, it's really, it, it, the, the English text doesn't really do justice to what happened. The word for kissed there, again, in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word katafileo. And it's something that she did, it means it's something she did repeatedly over and over again. And she didn't just kiss his feet, but she embraced his feet and she held them tightly, embraced them tightly, not wanting to let them go, not for a second. That's how emotionally invested she was in the moment. Just a few chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, we read the story of the prodigal son, which we're all familiar with. We know the story about the man who had two sons, and the younger son came to his father one day and said, give me my inheritance. And he did, and he took it to a distant country. And my NIV Bible says he wasted it on riotous living until he found he had nothing. He was feeding pigs, longing to have the food that the pigs ate. When he came to his senses, and he thought, I'll go home, and I'll just beg my father's forgiveness and ask him to give me a place in his kingdom, in his servant, in his, as a servant in his home, and there I'll, I'll be able to at least take care of myself and survive and he didn't know what to expect when he got home but you know how the story goes the father who represents God in the story saw his son at a distance and remember what happened he ran and he greeted him and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and it's the same word there katafileo now let me ask you a question if you had a son that left home and you didn't think you would ever see them again you were as far as you were concerned they were almost dead and you didn't think you'd ever see them again and then suddenly one day out of the blue there they were and you were reunited how would you respond would you be able to withhold any of the emotion of the moment? And that's the way this woman was. As she washed and dried Jesus' feet and as she held on to them and embraced them and she kissed them over and over and over again. And then it just continued. 
Because after she did that, she took, as my NIV Bible says, a jar of perfume. Truth be told, a better rendering might be flask or vial. It was not uncommon in that day for a woman to wear a flask or a vial of perfume around her neck on a cord. She used it for deodorant. And she broke it open and she poured it on his feet. Another sign of respect and devotion. Whenever a guest would enter your home in the first century, the host would show his welcome by anointing the forehead of his guest with a small amount of rose oil. But again, just like with the other situations, the other circumstances, Simon didn't do any of that when Jesus entered his home. It's an absolutely incredible scene. In fact, I thought about this for days, and I thought about how I could drive this point home, what I could say to drive home how shocking and emotional and tender this moment must have been, but I couldn't find the words. So just think about it again for a moment. Try to picture it in your mind. This broken, sinful woman, certainly an outcast in this town, becoming so overwhelmed, not just by the presence of Jesus, but by the reality of who he was and what he had to offer. I'm certain that she had encountered him before. She would not, she wouldn't have just been overwhelmed like this if this was her first experience with him. So overwhelmed by the presence and the reality of Jesus that she could not keep herself from responding with absolute abandon. What would it have been like? What would it have been like if you and I were there and we were a guest and we were watching all of this happen? What would it be like this morning if somebody at the end of the service became so overwhelmed by what Jesus had to offer to their broken life that they came down to the front and they absolutely were overwhelmed with emotion to the point where they lost complete control or concern about anybody around them or what anybody thought. They just worshiped with absolute, complete abandon. How would we respond? I'm sure we would find ourselves somewhere between being deeply moved and feeling very awkward in the moment as it unfolded before us. But sadly, that's not the way Simon responded. Because while all this was happening, the Bible says that he was just watching with a critical eye. And he was saying to himself, thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. But then comes one of the best parts of the story because even though Simon is presented in this story as having kept all this to himself, thinking this to himself or saying this to himself, Jesus knew exactly what was going through his mind. How many of you know Jesus always knows what's going through our mind? How many of you know that? No matter who we might think we're fooling in this world, we never fool Jesus. He always knows. He always knows. And so Jesus told him that story. Let me just repeat it for you. Simon, I have something to tell you. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied in verse 43, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. And then he explained what it meant. He turned to the woman, even though he was still speaking to Simon, and he said, you see this woman, I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. And then he did something that was even more shocking. He told this woman in front of all of those guests, that her sins had been forgiven. 
And they said among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And then Jesus took it a step further and he told her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, before we go any further, let's just all admit together so that we're on the same page that Simon failed miserably in all of this, didn't he? Simon failed miserably in everything that had happened from the time Jesus entered his home all the way up until the time this woman demonstrated her deep love for Jesus. And instead of being deeply moved by what happened, he was just critical that Jesus allowed it to happen. We don't know how this story ended with Simon. We don't know what happened to him next. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about what Simon did after he responded to the question that Jesus asked him when Jesus said about the two men who had been forgiven the debt, which of them will be, excuse me, which of them will love him more? It only tells us that the guests were surprised that Jesus claimed to forgive sin. That was something, by the way, that got Jesus into trouble all the time because he was doing that all the time. Jews believed that nobody except God had the ability to forgive somebody for their sins, not even a rabbi. And you know what? They were right. The problem is they just never recognized that Jesus was God. But as I read this story, there are just a couple of things that really stand out to me this morning that I want to share with you. I'm, I'm, I, am, I don't know about you, but I'm moved by this story every time I read it. I, I try to imagine what that would have been like to have been there, and it's just so overwhelming to me. But beyond that, there's a couple of things that really stand out. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down next to number one, and we'll talk about this for a minute. The first thing that stands out is the more you understand forgiveness, the more you love. The more you understand forgiveness, the more you love and let me just tell you right from the beginning so there's no misunderstanding. I'm going to make an application in this story a little bit later related to giving and generosity. But just so there's no mistake, I want everybody to look at me right now so you'll know and I'll know that you know. This story is all about forgiveness. Did you hear me say that? That's the context of this story. This is a story about forgiveness. This is a story that teaches us about the forgiveness that God offers to all of us. In fact, this story teaches us three things about forgiveness. Write down this first thing. It teaches us that we all have much to be forgiven. I hope we understand that this morning. We all have much to be forgiven, all of us. There's one statement in this story that stands out to me a little bit, and one of the reasons why it stands out to me is because it could be easily misunderstood. It's Luke chapter 7 and verse 47, at least the first part of the verse. Jesus says this about this woman. This is after he's told the story, after he's asked Simon the question about who would love the man who forgave the debt the most. He says about this woman, therefore I tell you, her, her, many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. It would be easy to misunderstand this verse because it would be easy to think that Jesus is saying that we commit many sins somehow so we can love God more. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. What's happening here is Jesus is trying to teach Simon a lesson about forgiveness. And it's easy for us to see that. It's easier for us to understand that when we understand that the word for in that verse has the sense of wherefore. So if you look back at it again, it says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for, or in other words, wherefore she loved much. That's how we should understand it. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, wherefore, or as a result of that fact, she loved much. But Simon didn't get it. Instead of watching this woman and allowing her 
response to Jesus, to teach him how he should respond to Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers, he made the mistake of just focusing on her sin to the point where he couldn't see his own. And I'm sure he thought, she's a woman who has lived a sinful life. I'm a Pharisee. Translation, she's a sinner. I'm not. But we all have much to be forgiven. Every one of us, every one of us who are here this morning, I'm going to put myself at the very top of the list. We all have much to be forgiven because the Bible says we are all sinners. Just because your sin is different than somebody else's sin doesn't mean that it's still not sin. God doesn't grade us on the curve when it comes to our sin and our righteousness. And we think that that's the way He operates sometime. We think that You know, we're not perfect and we're willing to admit that about ourselves, but we're way better than that guy or we're way better than her or that group of people. But God doesn't grade on the curve. We all have much to be forgiven. And one of the biggest mistakes anyone can make is to somehow believe that we need God's grace less than somebody else does. We all need God's grace because we all have much to be forgiven. Simon was too smug to acknowledge that. Just like there are a lot of people in the world today who are too smug to acknowledge their own sin, and they think that their goodness is good enough when it comes to God and His forgiveness, but it's not. I don't care who you are, you're never going to be able to receive the forgiveness of God until you come to a place where you acknowledge your own sinfulness, where you admit you're a sinner. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, He began with the Beatitudes, and in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what it means to be poor in spirit is just to recognize your own spiritual poverty. It's only when we recognize our own spiritual poverty that we can experience the riches of God's forgiveness. Simon didn't get it. That sinful woman did, and as a result, she received forgiveness. The second lesson that we learn about forgiveness here under this heading of uh, the more you understand about forgiveness, the more you love is this. And I know this sounds really simple, but we need to be reminded of this. If you want to be forgiven, you can be. If you want to be forgiven, you can be. See, because here's the deal. God's forgiveness is not based on how much we deserve it. It's based on His love. It's based on His sacrifice. And it's based on whether or not we want it. And so the pertinent question for us when it comes to forgiveness is, do I want to be forgiven enough to ask for it? Because if you go to God in sincerity and you ask to be forgiven of your sins, He's going to forgive you every time without fail. If you want to be forgiven, you can be. And that's something you can count on because it's the overflow of the love and the grace and the mercy of an infinite God. You know what, one morning this past week, I've, this, this message, this passage of Scripture has been running through my mind. If you're a preacher, you know what I'm talking about. It just runs through your mind all week long. And one, one morning this last week, I was praying. And I'm, I'm probably like you in a lot of ways. You're probably like me. Sometimes I just pray on the run. How many of you do that? I, I just pray on the run. I'm really good at praying when I'm driving. I'm really good at having things when I'm driving cause me to ask forgiveness when I'm praying. Forgiveness for when I'm praying. <laughs> And sometimes, you know, that's the way it is. But then sometimes, I wish, I wish I was more disciplined than this, but to be honest with you, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I spend lengthy times in prayer. And I was in one of those lengthy times of prayer, and I came to that part of the, my prayer time where I was confessing sin and asking God for forgiveness because the Bible says that's what we need to do. And as I was confessing a specific sin that I had confessed over and over and over before, 
I got this sense or this feeling in my mind that my words were kind of disingenuine or disingenuous rather because this is something that I had said to God countless times before. Not because I think somehow that God didn't forgive me when I asked for forgiveness because I know he did. The problem was that I kept doing it over and over and over again. And I think in that moment, our enemy, the devil, was trying to mess with my mind and get me to believe that because I had made this mistake so many times that God had run out of grace and mercy and forgiveness for me, which is never true. But I was able to remind myself in that moment that even though it might have felt that way to me, it might have felt to me like my words were disingenuous, disingenuous because I had already asked for forgiveness for the same thing over and over before, that that's not the way it was. That's not the way God felt about it because of his perfect character and his promise to forgive when we confess our sin. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 is a great verse for us to remember. John writes and says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, that's our responsibility, and God says he'll forgive us. If you come to God with an honest heart and an open heart and a humble heart and you ask for forgiveness, forgiveness is what you're going to receive. If you want to be forgiven, you can be. That's some of the best news we could ever hear. And, and it'll continue to happen if you continue to sin. Jesus was doing some teaching later in the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 17 in verses 3 and 4, and he says this. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Now, here's the lesson. Jesus is teaching us God expects us to forgive others without limit. You know why? Because that's how God forgives us. He forgives us without limit. Now, that doesn't give us a license to sin. Anybody who thinks that is misunderstanding this and missing the point. We never have a license to sin because sin is a bad thing. Sin causes pain. Sin wrecks lives. Sin breaks the heart of God. But he still forgives us because his forgiveness is not based on us. It's based on him. And if you want to be forgiven, you can be. The third lesson that this teaches us about forgiveness is that accepting forgiveness is an act of faith. I love the way the story ends in verse 50. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Receiving forgiveness is an act of faith. Now, let me tell you something. This is what that means. That means you don't have to wait for a feeling to confirm it. If you ask God for forgiveness, he's going to forgive you, and you can know that, that's, that it's happened. You, by faith, you can believe that it's happened. You, you can ask God for forgiveness, and you may not feel any different. You might feel like you've had a weight or a burden lifted off you. You might not, but you don't have to feel a certain way. You can believe by faith. You can trust by faith that God has forgiven you every time. Nothing, nothing magical or mystical is going to happen to you. You just need to believe it by faith. That's what this sinful woman did, and as a result, her life was changed. But there's a second thing that stands out to me about this story, and I have to do this quickly. We started the service. I actually started the service a little bit late today because we had so many people in the first service that it took a while to get everybody off the parking lot. But the second thing that stands out to me, not just the more you understand about forgiveness, the more you love, but the second thing is this, the more you love, the more you give. The more you love, the more you give. Uh, You know, when this woman broke open that alabaster jar or flask or vial, whatever it was, 
of that perfume and she poured it out on Jesus. She was probably giving him in that moment her most prized possession. She was probably giving every single thing she had to him. It was probably everything that she had. And it was her way of showing Jesus the depth of her love. It was her way of showing that she was all in with Jesus because it was an expression of sacrifice that came from love. The more you love, the more you give. Now, I'm going to reiterate what I said to you just a few minutes ago about this, this passage of Scripture and this story. This is, a, this is a story all about forgiveness. That's the context of this story. It can't be understood any other way. But at the same time, I think there's another application that can be made here, and that is the more you love, the more you give. You know, I, I really believe with all my heart, and if you've been to church here for any length of time, you know this is true, that we all have this great responsibility as Christians to be good stewards of everything that God has entrusted to us. And we talk about that primarily from the standpoint of money, but we have the responsibility to be good stewards of everything God has entrusted to us, our time, our talents, our, our influence, our opportunities, and our money or our treasure that God has entrusted to us. And we talk about that at this time of year with regard to money. I can find lots of biblical reasons. I can find lots of reasons from the Scriptures why being a good steward of what God has entrusted to me, financially speaking, means that I need to give a portion of it back to God. I can find lots of reasons why. Let me just mention a couple. I think giving back to God is a part of having a sound plan for stewardship. If you don't have a plan for the way you manage the money that God has entrusted to you, then you're falling short. There's no other way to say it. There's no other way to look at it. You're falling short. You need to have a plan for how you manage, how you handle the monies that God has entrusted to you, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. Now, I've told you repeatedly over the years that you can find a simple four-point plan from the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs teaches us that we need to keep track we need to know exactly. See, this is the problem most people have. I've, talk, I've counseled with enough people to know that there are a lot of people in financial bondage today, and one of the reasons why they're there is because they don't take the time to know what the reality of their financial situation is. They don't even know the most basic things like how much is coming in, how much is going out, and where it's being spent. But the Bible says we need to keep track. Proverbs 13, 16 says, every, every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. You need, to, you need to know what the reality of your financial situation is. The book of Proverbs tells us that we need to plan ahead, or in other words, we need to have some kind of a budget or spending plan in place for how we handle God's money. Proverbs 21.5 says, the plans of the diligent leads to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. I know people don't like to talk about budgets, but you need to have a budget. You need to have a spending plan. I don't care if you have a little or a lot. It doesn't matter. You need to have a spending plan. You need to have something in place that directs where your money goes. If you don't, then you're, not, you're falling short when it comes to the way you're handling God's money. Book of Proverbs tells us that we need to save consistently. This is a huge problem for people in America. Proverbs 13, 11 says, Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. we got all kinds of people coming to retirement age who don't have hardly anything in savings. And what, what's going to happen to those people? How are they going to live? How are they going to maintain their lifestyle? How are they going to even survive? And you're never too young to start saving. If you're just a young person today, you need to start understanding the value of saving money even at your young age. And the book of Proverbs tells us that a part of being a good steward is we need to give habitually. Give habitually. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, but the first fruit of all your crops. Honor the Lord with your wealth. He needs to receive the first fruit of all that we have. 
So we give as a part of having a good plan for stewardship. We give to break the power of money. Money on, in and of itself is an amoral thing, but the, our attitude towards money can make money dangerous. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 and says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now let that soak in for a minute, what he's saying. He's saying some people for the love of money have literally, actually wandered from the faith and as a result they've pierced themselves with many griefs. That's a dangerous thing. Money can ruin your life if you don't have the right attitude toward it. But I'm going to tell you this morning that nothing, nothing breaks the power of money in our life more quickly than by a willingness, than a willingness to hold it loosely and give it away. Giving breaks the power of money. The Bible also tells us that giving gives us an opportunity to lay up or to store up treasure in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not... Store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. He goes on to say, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There are only, how do we do that though? How do we store up treasure in heaven? How do we, how do we store up treasure that is eternal? There are only two things in the world that are eternal. You know what those are? The first one is the word of God. How many of you know this is true? The Bible is eternal. Every word is eternal. It'll last forever. You know what else is? Your soul and mine, the souls of men. And so we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven when we are generous to Christian ministries and Christian missions that reach out to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how we do that here at Mount Pleasant. I have not been very good, and honestly, I'll confess this morning, I have not been very good at, at talking about this over the years and keeping you informed about how we do this. But we do this in a powerful way here at Mount Pleasant. Now, as you might imagine, we have, we have a, a large operating budget here in this church because we're a large church. We have a lot of property, a lot of square footage with our buildings, a lot of staff. We've got a lot of responsibilities that way. But in addition to that, we give a lot of money away. In fact, in the budget year that we're involved in right now, we'll give away a little bit more than $1.7 million to our local and our global mission partners. A little more than $1.7 million. Somebody should either say amen or clap a hand to that. And the truth is, it's really more than that. Because that doesn't account for the money that we just give away spontaneously. Like, for example, not long ago, we just spontaneously sent a check for $50,000 to India to help feed orphans because they didn't have enough money to care for all the children, the fatherless children that were under their care. And we do that kind of thing all the time. So really, in truth is, it's so much more than that. Let me give you a little bit of a snapshot of what that looks like. We have global mission partners in India, Poland, Mexico, Egypt, and Canada. And in addition, we support mission partners that have offices here locally, in fact, right here in Indianapolis, that have influenced throughout Europe, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America. Over the past 18 months, over the past year and a half, we've been involved in launching churches. This church, you, because of your generosity, have been involved in launching churches in 13 different countries. They've been India, Poland, Mexico, Canada, Egypt, Estonia, Romania, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Cyprus, New Zealand, Myanmar, and Thailand. 13 churches in the last year and a half. 
One of the things that matters to us most, most is what's called leadership development for missions. You know, when I was a kid growing up, we would have missionaries come and travel to our church. And the, I got this picture in my mind of a missionary being a white American who at some point in their life decided they were going to leave everything in this country behind and travel to a different part of the world to serve the people there. And that's a model that's still in place, but not nearly as much as it used to be. Because the model today is for us to go into different countries and provide ministry training to people who are there, the indigenous people who are there, so they can use their influence and their knowledge and, and, uh, and their being a part of that culture to do ministry right where they are. And so leadership development is a huge thing for us when it comes to mission. In fact, we run our mission support through three filters. Number one, leadership development. Number two, church planting and church building, and number three, relief and development efforts around the world. And because leadership development and training is so important to us, right now this year, we will be involved in sending money to provide Christian training to men and women in 95 different countries around the world. We give money to provide for refugees, to establish medical clinics, dental clinics, and hospitals. We give money to provide clean water systems where no clean water is available. We give money to provide food for hungry people, homes for the homeless, care for unwanted children and orphans. We give money to rescue young girls from sex trafficking around the world. We give money to teach indigenous people different trades to give them a hope and a future. We give money to build Christian schools, to provide Christian-based education in different parts of the world, and we give money to provide a variety of different kinds of, of, of disaster relief around the world. Now, in addition to that, and there's more I could talk about, but I'm out of time, we, through our local impact ministry, we provide food and clothing to literally hundreds of people every week. We help people uh, through different agencies in Johnson County. Uh, we help women who are dealing with difficult and unwanted pregnancies. We build homes through Habitat for Humanity. We help break the cycle of poverty and unhealthy lifestyles and family dysfunction through a partnership with Shepherd Community Downtown. We provide help for women who need to be rescued and redeemed from degrading lifestyles. We provide money to give Bible clubs opportunities in local elementary and, mid and middle schools around this community, and it just goes on and on and on. And listen to me, when we do that, we're storing up treasure in heaven because we're touching people's lives and souls. Let me give you one last reason, and Brian, you come and we'll close. One last thing that I find in the Bible that tells me or teaches me about the importance of my giving. And I see this in the story that we looked at today. Giving is a tangible way to express our love for Jesus. Now, I'm going to say this again. I I don't want to misstate this story in any way. This is a story about forgiveness, the availability and the power of forgiveness. But when this woman broke open that, that jar or that flask or that vial of perfume, she was giving Jesus everything that she had as a gift of love. What she did was motivated by love. She didn't do it to try to pay for what she had received or earn what she received or anything like that. She did it as a sacrifice of love. Being a good steward is a huge thing to me. And being generous is a big thing for my wife and I. It's been a part of our life for years, even back when we had almost nothing to give. It's always been a big part of our lives. And I could stand up here this morning, I could tell you personal story after personal story about how God has provided for us and blessed us, I believe, as a result of that commitment. But I'm just going to make it real simple. I'm going to tell you this. I believe in being generous, and I'm sure that you can relate to this because I don't know I don't know where my life would be today apart from Jesus. Am I the only one here that feels that way? I don't know. 
I think back of my life and my family history that I've shared with you before, and I shudder to think where I would be today if there had not been a spiritual element introduced into my family. If the grace of God had not come to my grandmother, who was not that much different from the sinful woman that we read about in Luke chapter 7. We give out of love. It's a tangible way to express our love because the more we love, the more we give.